Are you ever curious what's going on behind the scenes in Hollywood? You watch a Netflix show or a Marvel movie and you wonder, why was that person in it? Why did this movie get made? I'm Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News, and I'm covering the inside conversation about money and power in Hollywood. With my new show, The Town, on the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm going to take you inside Hollywood with exclusive insight on what people in show business are actually talking about. Multiple times a week, we're going to bring you short, digestible episodes featuring some of the smartest people I know breaking down the hottest topics in entertainment to tell you what's really going on. Follow The Town now and listen on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air. I appreciate you uh, listening to the podcast here, choosing this podcast. Um... A lot of stuff going on. We have a really uh, fun show today. I, I call these shows kind of palate cleansers <laughs> for myself because it's all like just fun. I'm having uh, Rodney Barnes on, who is one of the exec producers for the show Winning Time, which is on HBO. And it's about the Lakers dynasty from the 80s. And it's uh, Adam McKay as uh, one of the producers of it. And man, it's just it's just pure escapist fun. You know, all that. And and shot beautifully, too. Um, characters talking to the camera, over-the-top uh, kind of portrayals of people. But, you know, but accurate, too. Accurate and not accurate at the same time. Is that possible? It kind of evokes who the people are, but they take some liberties. But it's all in fun. It is a fun show, guys. Winning Time and HBO Rodney Barnes is coming to talk about it. And it's always good to talk to um, people who are doing it in the business right now. Rodney's been doing it for a while. So I talked to him a few days ago. Um, Man, still a lot going on. The Ukraine situation. I want to thank Julia Yaffe again for being on the show uh, on the pod last week. Man, it was great talking to her. Um, that situation, whew, who knows what's going to happen there. But, you, man, you got to give the... Ukrainian people a lot of credit for the way they're standing up to the Russians. I mean, our view of all of that ahead of time doesn't seem to match what's actually going on, you know. So we'll see what's going to happen if this is going to be that long quagmire type of situation or if something dramatic is going to unfold quickly. But my heart's go out to all the Ukrainian people out there who aren't in Ukraine and the people who are in Ukraine, you know, fighting. We've never really experienced that here where, you know, that type of destruction that happens in a lot of these countries that are right next to each other, you know. So a lot of Americans really can't 
relate to that unless their families are from those areas or they're somehow from there. So, whew, man. Uh, I guess the biggest thing this week is the confirmation for Katanji, uh Brown-Jackson. I keep saying Jackson Brown. <laughs> it's so crazy. My brain wants to do that. Um, she has acquitted herself well. Man, I don't know how she kept it together doing some of those ridiculous questions, if you guys have been following it. And, you know, for the most part, these um, Supreme Court things are kind of political shows, right? People posturing and all this kind of stuff because it's being televised and, you know, they know elections are coming up and all that. But she's going she's going to be um, nominated or what is it? She's going to be confirmed. She's going to be confirmed. It's not a question because all the votes are there, you know. So in the meantime, uh, <laughs> these ridiculous people are trying to make themselves look good or whatever. So these things are always political. If you're on the other side of the aisle, the way that these things happen this time, you have to show that you object to this person in different ways or whatever. And it's always done. I'm a little still, uh, you know, knowing that that is the case. This just doesn't sit well with me this time for a lot of different reasons. But I'm just going to pick out one of them. You know, a, a lot of the different reasons are trying to somehow link her to pedophilia, that somehow she doesn't care about pedophiles or that kind of stuff. All kinds of stuff like that. Okay. But some of the things that gets picked up is I don't like it when people say this about her. It's the questioning of her intelligence, you know, which is led by Tucker Carlson insisting to see her test scores from law school or that type of thing. You know, there's a question about her intelligence, you know, and the other side of it is this phrase. Well, she's certainly intelligent, like starting sentences like that. Well, nobody questions her intelligence. Well, she's certainly intelligent. So it's both of those sides, the questioning her intelligence and the acknowledging that she's certainly intelligent. Well, you know, there's no question that she's intelligent. Well, motherfucker, why are you bringing it up? Who's asking that question except you? You are the only motherfuckers asking that question. We aren't asking that question if she's intelligent. It's obvious to us. But, you know, this really gets me. You know, a black woman is up there and the intelligence thing is brought up. Like somehow, if if they're bringing it up, that means in their minds there's an expectation that she's not intelligent that we expect her not to be intelligent, right? I don't remember them saying this about Amy Coney Barrett. I don't remember them saying this about any white man. Well, he's certainly intelligent. Nobody ever says that shit. But as soon as a black woman comes up there, well, she's certainly intelligent. Fuck you, motherfucker. What do you mean she's certainly intelligent? This woman will run rings around you in terms of intelligence. That is not even in the air, her intelligence. Intelligence. How she, you know, decided cases... Yes, that could be an issue, but not her intelligence. Like there's something basic about just her being that we need to question that needs to be on the table. You know, this happens, by the way, on the right and the left. You know, the right are just more upfront about it, but the left does it too. Hey, you know, you know, she's certainly intelligent. They say that shit. It really fucking gets me mad. Because, you know, we can't, we just can't win sometimes in, in this in this country, man, we can't. Sometimes, you know, like for years, you know, someone like Kintanji Brown-Jackson or black people, we couldn't get into elite schools, you know. The Ivy League and those schools were kept out because what? 
because racism, right? Then when the government said, all right, we're going to have to force you to do this. Well, the only reason why you got in because of affirmative action, right? Black people had to go through that. All the black people that went to some of these schools because the government had had enough, you know, I shouldn't say all of them, but some of them had to go through that shit. Well, they got in because of affirmative action. Okay, so now that time has passed, and it's obvious that it's not affirmative action is the reason why black people are going to these schools, that they are indeed belong there, and there's no questioning of that. So then the conversation changes to, oh, well, they're just elite. Oh, you go to these elite schools, or you're an elitist. Well, she's obviously an elitist if you go to these schools. Fuck you, nigga. We can't fucking win. We can't fucking win. No matter how how we come at this shit, we can't win in this. It really bugs me. You know, Barack Obama, community organizer, they keep calling him. They won't even never acknowledge the fact that he was the president of the Harvard Law Review, how hard it is to do what he did. And then if they do acknowledge it, well, yeah, he's an elitist. How many of those motherfuckers went to these schools? And they're never an elitist. There's always a way to put down black excellence. It really fucking bugs me, man. And, you know, and America has a lot of nerve, you know. America was in the black people destroying business for a long time, right? Slavery, Jim Crow, lynchings, redlining, mass incarceration, the so-called war on drugs, right? That was in the black people destroying business. And then we come to the point now where <laughs> all black people want to do is point that out. Suddenly blacks are in the America destroying business, right? CRT. You just want to destroy. You want to bring America down. We can't. This really, really bugs me, you guys. It really bugs me. Motherfuckers have a lot of nerve, you know. And you know, and it's not, I have to point this out because ugh, the the right is the worst at this, I think. But the left does it too. Like, white liberals don't always help. I know you guys are well-meaning, but you motherfuckers don't always help. All right? Um, I'll give you an example. Like, for me... For Joe Biden insisting that it has to be a black woman that he picks, he you are actually marginalizing us by doing that. You don't have to make a public insisting of that because now the pool is just black women swimming in that pool and you're going to pick a black woman out of that pool. You're segregating. You are segregating. And I know Democrats love segregation for years. I know you, you do that. Even if that is your intention, you don't have to make that public. Tell that to your friends. And you're only doing it for political reasons because you want black people to like you or you want to show that you're doing the right thing. Just do the right thing. How about that? Just do it. But you don't have to marginalize in the process, you know, because you get that big applause for saying you're going to. That's what's happened to me to Kamala Harris. One of the things that's hurt Kamala Harris is. Biden insisting, I'm only going to have a black woman vice president. Nigga, just choose a black woman. Why do you have to say that? Just do it. You, If you would only know how more powerful it is just to do that, just do it. 
The example of it is much more powerful. You are marginalizing by segregating your choice. People don't realize this. Pick a black woman out of the pool of everybody. I looked at everybody, you guys. I'm sorry. I got to go with this person. That is more meaningful. Okay. The other is political. It's pandering. I find it demeaning and condescending. But I get it. You know, I get the the well-meaning behind it. But stop. Give me your hand. Stop that shit. Stop it, motherfucker. Just pick us. You don't have to make promises like that. Just do it. God damn. Now my dog is getting all upset. Sorry, Buster. (laughs) Anyhow, that's all I got. I don't know. That just just gets me this week. All right. We got it. You okay? Buster's looking at me like, just, just Buster, I'm saying all they need to do is choose a black woman. Just choose her. You don't have to make these promises. You know, we'll, we will thank you for it when it's done. <laughs> you will get the benefit on the backside, you know. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, it is a, it, it nevertheless, thank you for doing it. You know, it is an historic choice. Um, it'll be interesting to see how she, you know, some of the issues that come to the court and what some of the decisions are, you know. Um, how she decides on some of these things would be real, real interesting. I'm, I'm very excited about this choice, even though I'm a little salty about the way it went down. All right, that's all I got. I just had to get that off my chest. Thanks, guys. <laughs> all right, uh, just a little break, and then coming up, we will talk with Rodney Burns. Jedi are being murdered. On June 4th, Star Wars returns only on Disney+. Plus. I didn't do it! Believe me! She was my student. Let me be the one to bring her in. Now she is a student of the dark side. An acolyte. Star Wars The Acolyte. Two episode premiere June 4th, only on Disney+. Plus. All right, welcome back, everybody. Okay, there's a war going on. You know, a lot of people are sad right now. We're just coming out of this pandemic. We don't know if we're going into another lockdown. We need something to be happy about and to (laughs) enjoy and a serious escape. And it's here. And it's called Winning Time, the Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. It is so much fun, you guys. I mean... As a Laker fan, of course, of course, I'm going to watch this. But I think you guys will have so much fun watching this. And joining us today, as I promised earlier, is the executive producer, writer extraordinaire, winner of many awards, including a Peabody. Yeah. Guys, this brother has put in his time. Hey, his brother. Work. Mr. Rodney Barnes, welcome to Black on the Air. Rodney, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I've never been jelly of any show except for this one. When I heard you guys were doing this, I'm like, what the fuck? How come nobody called me? I'm like the biggest Laker fan in the world. How can they be doing this show? And I haven't been told about it. Oh, man. How did the project come about? Were you right at the conception of it? or? Yeah, what happened was the quick rundown. Uh, Jim Hecht. Uh, who was one of our executive producers. He's a huge Laker fan as well. Mm-hmm. He found Jeff Perlman's book, Showtime, and loved the book and got the book to Adam McKay, who's a huge basketball mm-hmm. fan as well and loves the Lakers. 
And he took it to HBO. And HBO said, yes, we'd like to do this as a miniseries. Then they needed a writer, found Max Bornstein. Max and I have been writing partners over the past decade. Max called me, and then that's how it all sort of came together. How much, uh, because people say, this is Adam McKay style, but how much was Adam involved in the figuring out what this show was? I'd say Adam was a big part, certainly when you look at Adam's style. You yeah. know, if you look at movies like Don't Look Up and, and that type of thing, he has a lot of devices, narrative devices sure. that he uses. And we use a lot of those things as well. It's different, of course, from a movie to a TV show, but we use a lot of that same stuff to get things across. So Adam was Adam was really important to the process, as well as um, Todd Van Hazel, who's our DP. He yeah. designed the style, Amazing. the look of the show. And it looks fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. And the use of the Ikigami, which gives a certain look of the late 70s, early 80s to the show. So the look of the show becomes a character in and of itself as well. Is it shot on film? Uh, yeah. We use a lot of different stuff. Eight millimeter, uh, wow. 35, a bunch of different things. Eight millimeter. Yeah, a lot of things. Man. How much fun is that, right? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. Got a lot of cameras running at the same time. So. It's kind of a filmmaker's nerd project in some ways doing a show like this, right? That's exactly it, because you get to go back in time and use a lot of things that have sort of become obsolete over time. But we love it. Yeah. And it adds to the whole feel of it. What was the I mean, it's got to be feel intimidating to have a book like this that doesn't seem to have a form to make a limited series out of it. How did you guys first approach that? The beautiful thing about it is Jeff's book is sort of like the foundation, but everybody except Dr. Buss wrote a book. <laughs> right. So we That's were great. able to read everybody's book. And because of COVID, we had an extra year and a half to sort of do a deep dive study oh, into Spencer Haywood, Magic, Cookie. Everybody wrote a book. And between YouTube and articles that have been written and just different interviews, we've been able, Rick Fox was our technical advisor. Uh -huh. Gary Vitti was our technical advisor for a while. We had a bunch of other people come in and talk to us just about the team and the era and a bunch of stuff. So one of the reasons it expanded from a miniseries to an actual series was because we found so much stuff that, you know, if you compact all of that, you really have too much information right. for four to six episodes. Yeah, yeah. And then um, because in the beginning, we were going to do a couple of seasons of the Lakers team. And now we've sort of condensed it down to that first magic season when they win the championship. So is this then a limited series of one season then? No, this is going to keep going. Uh, Lord willing, in success, oh, we're going to keep going. And uh, But it was originally planned to be a limited series. Ah, that was I the see. original coming out of the box. It's only going to be like six episodes. So we just had so much material. And then the way HBO likes to tell stories, too, to sort of slow it down a little bit and get into the nuance of character. Exactly. And that sort of worked in our favor. Because you think with basketball, if you look at shows like Ballers, where it's about the fun of the game, we're sort of going backwards and adding a, another dimension to the character, the thing I love the most about the show as well is oftentimes I'm old enough, unfortunately, to have seen a lot of really bad sports movies and TV shows. Absolutely. And usually the players play the game and they become the verb of it. That's the good one. That's the bad one. That's the one that's going to get shot. Yeah. And then over here on the other side, the story 
is about the coach or about the owner right. or about the other folks. And here we get to add another dimension to um, who the players are and were back in their glory days. But we get to know who they are as human beings. Yeah, and yeah. they just happen to play a game. And everybody's sort of using the game as of basketball to fill some type of void in their lives, yeah. whether on the management ownership side or on the player side. So it creates a really nice balance. The hardest part is the narrative real estate trying to fit 40 characters into an hour of programming and making sure everybody gets some love is really the hardest part. Well, I would think that also gives you opportunities to, as you say, explore characters. You can devote episodes to primarily a character by still telling stories around that intersect, but not necessarily like the, the Jack McKinney episode was fantastic, you know, because a lot, a lot of people don't even know he existed. The two stories that I think uh, we're really proudest of is the Jack McKinney story and the Spencer Haywood story. That was Those great, yeah. two storylines, because if you look at how modern basketball is played, the up-tempo style, Jack McKinney and Showtime was sort of, I won't say the architects of that. Because you did have a lot of that in the ABA before. And Red Arbuck did a lot of that with the Celtics early on, too. He did. But that was still seemingly connected to traditional yes, basketball. Yes, it was, yeah. The Showtime offense seemed to be connected more to the ABA and the way the ABA and the NBA merged and Rucker Park and streetball. Absolutely. But Magic being the perfect guy to sort of lead the charge. Yeah. And doing this way in a controlled way sort of took on a life of its own. Okay, so I just want to give some context to, because believe it or not, Rodney, we have people that are not sports people, not yes. basketball people, yes. who yes. listen to the pod. You know, like we cover a lot of things. So let's give a little more context to this too. So here's what you guys need to know: the NBA was kind of stagnant in the '70s. It kind of had its glory days in the '60s with the Celtic dynasty. You had Wilt Chamberlain, who was like the Paul Bunyan, and all these storylines going on. By the '70s. The public seemed to get tired of it. People were calling it too black in some yep. ways. There were issues of drugs and player fights, that type of thing. It was barely on television. It was a number five sport, and it was tape <laughs> yes. delayed. The championship was tape delayed. Exactly. I remember as a kid, it would come on 1145 at night, and you couldn't watch the news because the sportscasters would tell you who yes. won. So it would give it away. Spoilers, yes. It was terrible. And... There was a league called the ABA that came out in the late 60s. The American Basketball Association. And they were an upstart league to the NBA. And they poached a lot of kind of flashy players like Pete Maravich played in the ABA. He was flashy. Rick Barry made his name there. Uh, the most eponymous name is Julius Irving. Julius Irving brought what was called playground basketball to professional basketball because then, and I always thought this was a white thing too, because as a black person growing up, we always thought, <laughs> why can't you dribble through your legs and all this? It was considered not professional basketball to play what was called playground, meaning juking Show a player ball. by going through your legs, going around your back, you know, flashy passes, things like that. It wasn't considered good basketball, right? No. And a, a lot of that, I think, was a bit racial because black players, oh, yeah. Earl the Pearl Monroe brought some of that to the Knicks, but he still, I felt he wasn't quite the Pearl, you know, <laughs> that he probably could have been, you know. Yeah, and, and I think um, it was all showing off. Showboating is what my coaches back in the day used to call That's it. That's exactly right. And, and I think with the dunk, that was sort of a um, a radical expression of defiance in yes. a certain way. And Dr. J with the afro and flying through the air. Oh. 
And even when you were saying like with Earl Monroe, he played below the rim. He you did. know, even though the sweet rim moves, I don't want Spike Lee to come after me. He was, you know, he was fantastic. He was nice. Guys like Connie Hawkins and Dr. J that played above the rim ushered in this new era of how the game was going to be played and what we see today, modern basketball. Exactly. Now, a lot of it too, Rodney, and I'll go back to the racial part of it. It's that black bravado. It's Dr. J with a big afro stuffing the ball on a white yeah. player. You know? Dan Issel. Just killing exactly. Dan Issel. Exactly. Or at 77 when he dunked it over Walton. Bill Walton. You know? Oh, my God. That was beautiful. So that's what was on its way. Yes. And what they didn't know was that that energy was eventually going to capture the imagination of the American mm-hmm. public, but it hadn't yet, and it needed a release valve. And that's what Magic Bird provided, I think, in the 80s. So that's my little context for kind of where this show begins at that turning point. Right? It sort of created a narrative, too, you know, good guy versus bad guy, great mm-hmm. way, hope type thing with Bird, because if you remember in the NC2A championship when oh, they yeah. played against each other, that was the kind of pre cursor to what we were going to get in the NBA. And in our show, we have David Stern sort of saying, you know, hey, we can keep this thing going. We have a lot of great players, but we don't have a narrative. Yeah, We don't have something that the audience can kind of sink its teeth into to make this entertainment more so than just a game. Mm -hmm. And when you think about Larry Bird going to Boston and Boston being as different from L.A. as you could possibly be. The personality of a Magic Johnson coming to L.A. and celebrity and all of that stuff. And you have this culture clash that's happening with the game as well. That's bringing us more now into mainstream must-see TV. And I think that sort of revolutionized the game of basketball from an entertainment point of view. I think you've got media, you've got cable television coming. I remember WGN when the Chicago Bulls would play Chicago television. I had never seen out of market games. Yeah. And those games. And then Michael Jordan gets drafted, goes to Chicago. So now I'm watching Michael Jordan. And now all of these players that typically you'd only see on Sundays when they were playing uh, on NBA on CBS, Now you're getting this influx of other teams, other personalities, other things. And so this narrative is growing into a thing that's becoming more familiar, which I think has a lot to do with the rise of the NBA being a world game now, not just an American game. Yeah, it really is interesting from a historical standpoint to see something at the beginnings. And I'll get into the performances in a bit, but even just the... (laughs) Just the id of Jerry Buss, mm-hmm. the id of that character is fantastic, you know, because as salacious as this character is portrayed and everything, you know, he really is the visionary, you know. Uh, how much of a visionary also was David Stern during those days? Was he a true visionary? He was a lot more so than I think people give him credit for, because there's some problem stuff that's in there, too. Sure. But he certainly had an eye on taking the game from where it was to where it is now or something mm-hmm. that resembles what it is now. Like Pete Rozelle in football and their ability to take the game and evolve it, he had a lot to do with that. Yeah. So we're talking a little bit about some of the ways you shoot and everything. And I want to talk about the style a little bit more. How did you decide upon this particular narrative storytelling? Uh, I know some of it we were saying is Adam's thing, but but how did you feel this would be the way to tell this particular story, both visually and the way that it's coming across? A lot of people talk about breaking the fourth wall and how we have characters talking to camera. And a lot of that had to do, again, with having such a big cast and trying to find ways to get more information in a scene. 
and not just having two characters or three characters talking right. to one another. If you can deviate for a moment and get a little more information from a character, whether it's about character stuff and learning what their personalities are right. or the larger agenda that we're trying to achieve throughout the episode, it's a really great device. And then from an entertainment point of view, from the audience, you don't know when it's coming. So it makes you on the edge of your seat wonder, you know, at some point, is this person going to talk to me? So yeah. we use animation. I don't know how many episodes you've seen. If you've seen Jack McKinney, you've seen a few. But all of that's to sort of heighten the experience and get as much stuff in there as we possibly can. No, I'm a big fan of that. I, I did a lot of that when I was doing the Bernie Mac yeah. show, actually. Yes. And, and for me, it was, I called it shortcutting, you know, rather than write exposition, just have Bernie talk to the camera you yes. know, and say, I'm going to kill those kids. Okay, well, that's the exposition. That's what we need to know, yes. you know, or writing on the screen and that type of thing. Um, I want to talk about the casting. Mm -hmm. Ryan, the casting is brilliant in this. It's so interesting from an audience perspective. And sometimes you go, is this going to work? And you go, you know what? It kind of does, yes. you know, yeah. for especially Adrian Brody. But let's talk about uh, the gentleman who plays Magic. Quincy Isaiah is his name, right? Quincy Isaiah Crosby. Yes. How did you find this guy? He looks, he really feels like magic of that era. And to top it off, he comes from Michigan. So he understands the culture and the cadence of speech and so many other ah, things that you probably couldn't just teach. Like he has them deeply ingrained in him. But Quincy has a lot of charisma. Quincy is an incredibly mm -hmm. happy guy. I think with the great actors, there's something they do with their eyes. Quincy has this glow that makes you just focus in on him. He's incredible and had never acted before. This is his first role. Really? Where did you find him? He uh, did a self-tape. And when he saw the casting thing, he submitted his tape. Francine Maisler is uh, our casting director, and she is mm -hmm. responsible for a lot of this coming together. We were looking for Michael Coopers. It took a while to find a Michael Cooper. Our Kareem process, uh. it was incredible because you had to find a guy who was seven feet tall, who looked like Kareem. We found one, <laughs> Dr. Solomon Hughes is his name. I wouldn't say that he's an introvert, but he certainly does think a lot. But with the players, it was so hard because they mm -hmm. had to do so many things. They had to act. They had to be able to play basketball or at least learn, have some physicality to learn the game of basketball. And play like the players they're playing. It's a part of their character. You have yeah. to be able to pass like magic and still take that charisma from a regular scene where you're just acting onto the basketball court and still be believable in that way as well. For Solomon, the skyhook, to be believable with one of the most iconic shots. That's really a finesse shot that you don't see very much in the NBA these days. Kudos to all of those guys for the discipline and the work ethic that they all put into this because it was Herculean. Was Quincy a basketball player before this? Football player. He had to lose 100 pounds. He was an offensive lineman. He was a center. Wait, hold on. When did he lose 100 pounds? Before he auditioned? Yeah, well... When he auditioned, he was that size. He was, uh, I think he'll say 290 or almost 300 pounds. And once he landed the part, he whittled down and got into basketball shape. No way. Yeah, man. He worked really, really hard. This was kind of an intervention for this kid. <laughs> it works for football. For football, it works to be bigger. If you're not playing anymore, it works against you, yeah. True. But yeah, he carried it well. I'll, I'll give him that in case he hears this. But 
the amount of work he had to put into um, becoming our Magic Johnson was was a lot. The center of the show, John C. Riley. Yes. He is such a joy to watch. And one thing I'll say about this, too, for people watching this, and this is just my opinion on it. This, to me, is... I want to make sure I use the right word. This is a larger-than-life presentation for some of these characters, like Jerry West. Jerry West, absolutely, some of these things, I refuse to believe happen. <laughs> they happen. I'm telling you, they happen, man. They happen. They happen. In some of the ways, like... Jerry West, the way he's portrayed is beautiful, by the way. It is one of the funniest portrayals. But, I mean, come on, Dr. Bus, some of the stuff, some of the way that Riley it imbues this character, how much of this is over the top and how much of it is, would you say, accurate? What we say is the stuff that you wouldn't believe happened, happened. Uh -huh. Right. So that stuff, even for legal reasons, you know, we have to make sure that we operate within sure. certain, you know, boundaries for sure. Ninety percent of it is true. You know, the the connectors that, you know, we have to use to bring things together and to dramatize and stuff. But, you know, again, during the research process, you know, we had to have some tangible proof that these things happen. And from everything we know about Jerry West, other than Jerry coming in and being Jerry and some other things I probably can't tell you. Did he come in? Did he come into the writer's room? He didn't come in. He didn't come in. Oh, okay. But we have folks who've been connected to Jerry enough to be able to say that's the, a close version of Jerry. Ah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to stay, you know, safe. Right. But yeah. Have you heard from the bus family at all for any of this? Not really. I believe uh, John was at a game. And Jeannie came up to him and said some really kind things in regards to, you know, her father being a fan of his mm -hmm. as an actor. But we haven't really heard from anybody within the Lego organization officially. What's the reaction from Magic? So far, Magic says he did, he hasn't watched it. He's watched it. Just what he said. He <laughs> said he hasn't watched it. Right. And he has his own doc he's doing. And um, that's going to be the real story. So there you go. But, you know. I'm sort of empathetic to him and Kareem in yeah. particular. If someone was telling the story of my life and I didn't really have a say in it, yeah, 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 I yeah. would probably feel a way too. So I get it. Did Magic write a book from that era? He did. Yeah, that was part of the research process. Did you find the books were generally overlapping or were there some that were like, hmm, this person had a really different experience? His book and Cookie's book, mm. ironically, saw some of the same things differently at least tonally how they saw certain periods and you found that from time to time like the spencer haywood story spencer sees his story a little different than some of the other players saw spencer's story and that type of thing but there are some things that sort of align and you get that with human nature sometimes two people can see the same thing completely differently so that's understandable yeah, I think this is going to be so much fun for people to watch. I'll tell you uh, my story. I played basketball, you know, coming up and everything. I came up in a real sports neighborhood. And, like, right down the street from me was Bill Duffy, who played at my high school. Mm. He was a high school American. He's a big sports agent now. He ended up playing at Minnesota. And Billy was a high school American. He came back one summer from one of these high school games. He said, hey, guys, there's this guy out there. He's this six nine point guard and we're like no way and said so he makes like wrap around the back passes length full court we're like no way and said so his name is magic we're like magic who is this person you know? and he told us about magic johnson right before he went to michigan state you know 
And so I was kind of on the lookout for Magic during that era. And and the day before the Lakers' first game against the Clippers, which you guys do a great episode about, I was in a barbershop in L.A. and Magic came in. You know, nobody really knew who he was. Then I was there. My dad said, Dad, that's Magic Johnson. He said, who? He didn't know who he was. And so... I went over and sat next to him because I, I knew some of the players he had played with because I was playing ball at that time. And we talked for like 45 minutes. And I was so happy that I kind of got a chance to experience Irvin Johnson before he was, you know. The transformation was complete. Man, Rodney, I have to tell you, it's one of the joys of my life that I had that conversation with him. Wow. You know, it was so much fun to talk to him. And uh, he was kind of quiet and I wouldn't say shy, but it was just. But it was a real conversation. There was nothing else around it. And then Jim Hill showed up and he was doing an interview. And then, you know, he got a haircut and all that stuff. And uh, years later, I was doing this show called the Jim Thorpe Pro Sports Awards. And this is when Magic was in the Olympics with Jordan and them. And we were having Jordan give him an award. And now I get to see Magic Johnson, you know. And it's completely different. He's not having anybody right now. There's no no, no, no room no. for you. I was like, man, the experience is, this is magic. Like, the experience was so much colder and everything. <laughs> like, even Jordan seemed nicer, which is hard to believe, you know. <laughs> like, Jordan was more accommodating. And now, full circle, I was at a Knicks game, and I was in that, you know, it's where they, you sit courtside, not courtside, but in that section. And yeah, yeah. At, at Madison Square Garden, before the game, you you're, you get to have this buffet dinner, and we kind of sit, and then they take you out to your seats it's pretty cool and uh magic came in and it's full circle now now he's like a combination of magic and Irvin. he's like going around the tables how you doing man how's it going everything good for you and i'm like look at this man magic has come full circle now <laughs> he's like back to being a combo and you were there at every step i <laughs> saw it yeah. but i feel like he's a combo of magic and Irvin right now depending on the situation which i'm very happy for him because i'm a huge fan of magic yeah as am i and certainly those of us associated with the show it's a love letter. I mean, we exactly. really appreciate everything that these guys did. And I think initially the folks around the Laker organization may have thought that it was going to be like a hit job or something. It's not. No, it's really not. It's a celebration in a very artistic way. And I have to say, Adrian Brody, I was saving this one. What an inspired piece of casting. First of all, how do you get Adrian Brody on your limited series to play Pat Riley? Like, what was that conversation about? Well, again, Francine Maisler and Adam McKay. I think the most important part of Adrian's uh, performance is I'm the person, because I'm in the show as an actor as well, I'm the person at the forum that stops him in his first scene. Oh, that's right. Yeah, from yeah, coming yeah. in. That's Maurice, right. the head of Lakers security. That's right. Yeah, but um, yeah. AB is fantastic. I think he had a different idea of uh, yeah. Pat Riley. He's thinking Armani suit, slick back hair. That's what he Pat became. Right. That's what he becomes. But in the beginning, when he's the guy just trying to get in the door and yeah. to be a part of the Laker organization, I don't know if they sold him on that part in the beginning, mm -hmm. but here he is. And I think he does a fantastic job. The scenes with him and Chick, you know, with the fist were my favorite. Oh, I love that. The looks that he gives. Oh, it's fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the guy who, who plays Chick Hearn? Uh, Spencer Garrett. You know, what's interesting is that he's doing his own portrayal Chick. Like, he's not doing an impression because Chick had such a distinctive cadence yeah. and voice and all that. He's doing his own version of Chick, which is kind of interesting, too. Yeah, Because yeah. you don't want to do impressions, of course, because mm -hmm. these are real people. Mm -hmm. So what's the challenge of working with actors of saying... You need to be this person, but you're being your own person in that person. I don't know if I said it right. But. No, I, I got what you were saying. I think for some characters, it's harder than others. The ones that the public are the most familiar with 
take Kareem and Magic. I'm sure if you were to talk to Quincy and Solomon, that might be a little more difficult because people have an idea in their minds of who these people are. Some of the more obscure folks like Jack McKinney, like mm-hmm. Spencer Haywood, like Jesse Buss, played by the great Sally Field, people that you don't know as well, they can sort of create the idea of who those people are going to sure. be. So there's a duality in that process of, you know, the people you don't know, whew, I can be whoever I want to be. I can make up a person. Exactly. The people you do know, I got to smile. I have to be more introverted. I have to be this way. I have to be that way. So, you know, it's probably um, a little bit with both as to how, um, you know, the pressure that's on that particular actor as to who they're playing. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 40% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So because we have a lot of uh, people who are aspiring writers and that kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. directors, people who want to do what you've done writing, whenever I have somebody like yourself in the show, I like to go back to how they got into the business and some of their starts. What was your entry, let's call it? And was this something you always wanted to do? I had a teacher in the eighth grade tell me that if I ever, I had just done an assignment. It was actually punishment in a way. He said that if you ever took writing as seriously as you did being a class clown, you might have a future as a writer. Wow. And even though I laughed it off, it stayed in the back of my mind. And I'm a big guy. Um, I tried to play basketball and football, but I wasn't good enough. So that kind of fell by the wayside. And circumstances sort of led me to going back to Howard University because I had two lives as a student. One was trying to be an athlete. The other one was going back to be an actual student. And I started to work on uh, movies and TV shows as a production assistant in the D.C., Maryland area. So like whenever uh, something would shoot there. Yes, I would. They would hire me to come in. Forrest Gump, Clear and Present Danger, the Pelican Brief. And they would do like uh, glamour shots of the Capitol building or the Washington Monument, you know, Mm -hmm. White House, et cetera. So I ended up working on a movie, Major Pain. And with someone, you know, Damon Wayans, the Damon Wayans. And Damon asked me, uh, he called me in his trailer, like, I think four days in. He asked me what I wanted to do with my career. I thought I had done something wrong. (laughs) But I think we were the only two brothers down there at the time. So, you know, he needed a friend for the next four months. Uh, I subbed it up. And for the next two and a half years, I would follow him around the country working on his movies. I would live in my truck. Really? When, you know, when you're working on a movie and you have craft service and you have everything you need to sustain yourself. Basically, my pickup truck was my home. Showbiz homeless. Exactly. And I ended up coming out to L.A. my first time working on a movie, Bulletproof, with Adam Sandler. Mm -hmm. And worked on that movie. And Damon said, you know, 
if you want to be a writer, you're going to have to move to LA. And this was 95, 96. This is before the internet and all of that stuff. Sure. Packed up my stuff, moved to LA, lived in my car for about eight months or so. Wow. Started to reintegrate into the world of production in LA because I'd known a bunch of folks working on the East Coast that hired me out here. And then eventually Damon gave me a shot for one day to be a punch-up writer on my wife and kids. And oh wow. I just kept coming back. This was before 9-11 when security wasn't very tight on the Disney lot. I remember those days. Yes. And I just kept coming. And Don Rio was a showrunner at the time. That's right. And Don sort of adopted me. And every day I would sit across from him and he took whatever raw ability I had and sort of helped mold and shape. I mean, I brought a lot of insecurity with me and imposter syndrome uh, Mm. from Maryland to L.A. And it took a while to sort of need all of that stuff. It's not completely needed out But to get to a place where it was more of myself I was bringing to the job and not so much just what I thought the job should be or myself in it, if that makes sense. I think imposter syndrome, to me, belies that there's something in there that really has an expression, but there's a humility about it, you know, because you wonder, why would people like this thing, you know, because I tell people it never goes away. I always feel like one day somebody's going to figure out that I have no idea what I'm doing (laughs) Thank God that day hasn't come yet. (laughs) There's a great book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Uh, It's about resistance. And he talks about that very thing. It's like the people who feel like they've got it made and they've got all the answers. That's probably the person that shouldn't be doing the thing, that actually lucked into the thing. But the person who is self-aware and is haunted by that other thing, that's the person who probably has gifts and talents that he's not acknowledging in the way that they should be acknowledged. Yeah. The difference is the people who are just looking for the job and the people who have an expression. Yes. And they, they want the opportunity to be able to have that expression somewhere, you know, or to get more skilled so their expression can come out better and that type of thing. And, and to me, emotionally connected as well. Like there's yeah. a thing, there's a heart thing and not just a head thing. And you're trying to get them to work in concert with one another so that you can best do this thing that you're passionate about. And mm-hmm. it's a complicated emotional process. And I think a lot of people are hampered by conventional life. You go in, you fill out a, a resume, an application, or you turn in your resume, you get a job. And this creative thing, there's a different emotional connection that's there that I don't know if the world trains you mm-hmm. to be prepared for. So it's a constant evolution in figuring out who you are in this as you're trying to get better at doing the thing. Yeah. And also there's a different road for everybody. And writing is it's just different from everything else. Like you can have a musical genius at five years old, you mm-hmm. know, it's not the same in writing. No, there are no savants walking in the room that uh, exactly. immediately, no Shakespeare no, no, no. or anybody. Coming. You uh-huh. need a combination of life experience mm-hmm. mixed with craft and point of view and all these things. And it takes time for that, you know. A little trauma. You need a little trauma Completely. and to be able to work that trauma out and some self-awareness. And yeah, it's a stew. It's this weird stew. It is a, a little bit of gumbo. Yeah. Yes. So how far on wife and kids did you kind of go up that ladder? Were you there for the entire run once you were there? Yeah, I came in, I think, at the end of the first season. And I, the whole run of that, and then Everybody Hates Chris, and the whole run of that, then I did the Boondocks on top of both of those shows at the same time. So um, 
there was a lot of overlap and a lot of work. It was funny though, because that was the hardest time because yeah. there was so much stuff emotionally. Every day was like being in Vietnam. Like I was afraid it was going to be my last day. Like you said that I'm, somebody's going to say, you don't belong yeah. here and send me back to Maryland. So I was working a lot and I thought that's just what it was mm-hmm. until for a period of time it wasn't. Um, but it was a great 10, 11 year run um, for a while. But um, I look back on those days now with a little bit of sentiment that I didn't afford it when I was actually in mm-hmm. it. But um it was like boot camp. And Rodney, you're you're a very creative person. I think your your point of view or where you come from is a lot of genre busting type of ideas, I think, of what you like to do. When did you get comfortable enough to say, I gotta be me now and I'm just learning? You know that drop off point. Because the things you had done up to that point, with the possible exception of boondocks, wasn't really you, but you had to learn. When did you say, okay, I got to do the stuff that's me? That's an excellent question. In 2012, 2011, I sort of hit a wall, Mm -hmm. uh, both career-wise and life-wise. I had uh, went through a divorce Mm. that was very, very difficult. And then I got sick. I almost died. Mm. At heart attack, liver failure, and kidney failure, like boom, 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 right after each other. I ended up in the hospital. And there's a brother by the name of Devon Franklin, who's an executive and a... um, a producer as well. He came to see, and a pastor, and he came to see me at the hospital. Mm. And I'd been there on and off for almost six months. And I was in a really difficult place. And I think I just, I don't know exactly how I said it, but it was like, how did everything that was going so well just hit this wall? And he said, why do you do what you do? And I said, when I was a kid, when I would watch movies and TV shows, it would speak to me in a way that it didn't speak to my friends. And I wanted to give other people the feeling that I had when I was going through watching movies and TV shows. Mm -hmm. He said, so it was a heart thing, right? I said, yeah. He said, are you working from your heart now? Mm. And I said, no. He said, what are you doing now? He said, I'm making money. And he said, I think if you reconnect with your heart and you begin to write from a place of passion, that I think you'll find your way back onto your path. And shortly thereafter, I met Alan Hughes of the Hughes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he gave me my first opportunity to write drama. I rewrote an HBO pilot. And I got a response I'd never gotten before when I was working on sitcoms and on the Boondocks, which it was a sitcom too, but it was different. And um, I was like, wow, you know, I sort of opened the vein and poured blood on the page for the first time. Wow, I love that expression. Everything else up until that point has sort of been work. Yep. And this was a different emotional experience. And there was another thing, and you know mm-hmm. this with your distinguished background, when you're writing a sitcom, good, bad, or in between, you're going to make a show once a week. Absolutely. It's like a factory in a way. It was different in this instance. Yeah. This was more of art. And I remember I had written took me two weeks to write this pilot. And Alan said, when he read it, man, this is really good. This is a good start. Like, start? <laughs> start. <laughs> what is start? What do you mean by start? And cut to like 35 drafts later. Uh, it was the script that sort of turned my career around from a guy who. Wait, wait, wait. Say that. How many drafts? 35. 30. Easy. Five. 35. 35 drafts uh, between HBO notes and his notes <sighs> and then us together. And it got to a place where this draft, I've eaten off of this script 
for years now because um, I think it was the first representation of me as a writer versus a guy complimenting other writers and showrunners on television shows before. And there was a difference between those two. And I'd never made that difference. So nice. I'd gotten comfortable sitting in those black chairs, you know, getting a good lunch and just being a guy. I was going to be a gun for mm-hmm. hire. And this was a different process of actually having a voice. Right. And then I realized that Hollywood actually wants your voice more so than just your ability to be a serviceman, a, a gun for yeah. hire. Both are important, but one has more value. Exactly. And so that was the thing that sort of led me on a different path. When you asked, how did those, how'd you go from this guy to that guy? Sort of having that epiphany that I had something of value and I had a voice and I had a thing that actually spoke to my heart. Now there's this light, this pilot light has been lit and now I want to do it more and more and more. And so if you look at the second half of my career and for the last seven to 10 years, it's been more about the genre stuff. It's been more about um, winning time. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing a Tiger Woods miniseries. But they're things that, that speak more to me intrinsically than just coming in to provide a service. That pastor was a huge intervention then. Oh, Devon is the man. That's amazing. Uh, to this day. I, and your health I rebounded because of that as well, I guess, right? Yeah, I'm still here. It's way better than it was. But, you know, it's just one of those things where I think if you're going in one direction and you think that's the right direction, even if it's not working out the way that you wanted to, sometimes you need something to come in and intervene to wake you up to where you really should be. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I always thought that being a writer, I could sort of erase the aspects of myself that I didn't like. Like I could leave Maryland and become this new guy, the hotshot Hollywood writer guy. And I noticed that the most unhappy I'd ever been is when I made the most money. Mm. Like I thought somehow having a lot of money would make me like happy. And I wasn't happy. I was in a life that sort of I had manufactured almost like a story and Mm -hmm. it wasn't who I really wanted to be. And I think had I not gone through some of those things that I went through, I wouldn't be in a place where I'm doing the type of stuff right now that we get to talk about and that I'm actually, I think, speak more to who I am than the other things that are cool and fantastic. And I'm glad I did those things, but it wasn't the best representation of myself. And once you... Uh, stop being a caterpillar and became that butterfly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, yeah. uh, did you create a vision for yourself or did you just kind of, you know, bit by bit existed in that world? What, did you have a plan for yourself at that point? I found that there were people, I started to attract a different group of folks. Ah, that makes sense. Who actually supported me in a different, like in the superhero world, it's a pantheon, like the Justice League or the Avengers, where you start to find like-minded folk. And I started to find for the first time, my tribe of folks (laughs) who actually helped me become a better version. It's like, okay, once you put this thing out in the universe, and then you do something that shows you can actually do the thing, that there's some aptitude, actual aptitude there, then people start to look at you differently. And I started to find people of note who could help me along this journey in a different way. It wasn't so much put your arm around me mm-hmm. and say, come on, son, I'm going to show you the way. But you start to communicate with people in a different way, in a more authentic way. Yeah. And you find people who, um, certainly in our culture, there's not a whole lot uh, that I found in that way, because oftentimes you don't get an opportunity to build a resume. Right. You know, it's, it's so scattered. But I started to find people, both in our culture and out, who 
I began to have really, really deep, meaningful relationships with, mm-hmm. and those relationships actually helped me become better and better and better. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I feel like you're happening at a really good time for black writers because when, when yeah. I started, you know, black writers were in such a box. It's one of the reasons why oh, yeah. I wanted to be a creator because I was inspired by Spike and Keenan and some of the stuff we were doing on our own. And I'm like, Hollywood, you're too slow, you know, and we're more mm-hmm. varied than you're giving us credit for, you know. But I feel like now there's more of an opportunity for different types of voices and lanes, you know, what Jordan Peele has been able to do, you know, to bust open the, the genre lane for, for black writer creators and that sort of thing. It has to make you feel good for for what, you know, the different types of projects that you're currently doing even, right? Yeah, but, but I think folks like yourself, Shonda Rhimes, Kenya, a bunch of people who just had honest voices and were able to bring a certain degree of specificity and nuance to what before you could tell white guys were writing those stories <laughs> because they didn't feel right. like that's not how we do the thing. I look at black exploitation in mm-hmm. that way. You had great actors doing the best they could with what they were given. Mm-hmm. And now you have this reality where you have folks really getting the real stuff. You know, they're getting the honest scripts and things coming across their desks. And so you can do work. It feels new. It feels fresh. Yeah. It feels nuanced in a way that we didn't have it before. And to Jordan's point, Jordan and I uh, did a pilot together a few years ago. And I remember he was pitching me this story. And it's about this black guy. And he was going to his white girlfriends. He was going to meet her parents. And they had like Stepford wives. And I'm like, this is the craziest idea anyone. I didn't say that to him. I said that to him at the time, but I was thinking it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. This nigga's this nigga's crazy. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I understand. Okay. All right, I'm gonna go Whatever. with it. Key and peel. I'm gonna go with and it. Peel. And, it, and then cut to, you know, you see this thing that's like, oh, that's what he was talking about. And I saw him not long ago, and he was the happiest brother I think I've ever yeah. seen. I hope one day to touch that uh degree of happiness, but he's doing exactly what he wants to do. Yeah. And I think when you get that, when you can write from your heart and you can do work that really speaks to who you are, mm-hmm. um, somehow it improves the quality of your life in a way that money can't improve. You. Yeah. And I think you see more and more creatives that are doing that type of work right now. And it's like you said, it's a great time now when you can walk into an executive's office and pitch from your heart, yeah. not so much what I think you want to hear. I know what I want to do, but I know you may not be able to relate to this idea. So somehow I've got to create this bridge between what you want and what I want in order to sell this thing. And I think we're in a period right now where people can actually walk in and be themselves and have a shot at getting a thing done. Yeah, more than ever. You're absolutely right to be yourself, you know. And yet I think what's a good lesson from you also is that it's okay to start at the bottom and start. Oh, yeah. Because you learn so much from those experiences. You learn just the the technical aspects of the business. Those are important things to learn, you know. And and even from a personal place, I would have hated if 10 years ago somebody would have made me a showrunner or even an EP. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared psychologically, emotionally for any of that stuff. And it just takes a while, I think, the confidence that you have to build and understanding the psychology of how this, this ecosystem of what a television show is When I was in college, I thought if you could write well, that was it. You know, you just come in, you write your story and you go home and you have to be so you wear so many different hats. You know, you have to be a hype man. You have to be a manager. You have Mm -hmm. to be a A therapist. You have to be so many. You have to be able to manage yourself. (laughs) 
you have to be a therapist and you have to have some moral compass, you know, and being able to look at uh, the people around you. And if you're a leader to be able to, to help them become their best selves in order to get the thing that you need in order to make the thing the best that it could possibly be. And I didn't have that as a human being for myself, mm -hmm. no less having to do it as a job. So, but in these 20 plus years of being able to sit and do it again and again and again, I think um gotten better at it. That's awesome. Tell us about some of the projects you're excited about right now. Anything you can share with us? Yeah. The Tiger Woods miniseries. Now, is that a dramatization? Because we just saw that Tiger Woods doc. It's based on the documentary that's based on the book. It's the same book, Tiger. Oh, the yeah, foundation yeah. of both of them are the same, written by uh, Jeff Benedict. It's the same source material. There's that. Uh, Philadelphia, my comic book, my vampires. We've optioned that and trying to get that going. I have a feature at Netflix, Right Around Shining, with Jonah Hill and Lakeith Stanfield. You have so many projects in different places, too. You know, Things that make white people uncomfortable <laughs> at HBO Max. I'm really happy about that one. What is, now, tell us what that is, exactly. Former NFL great Michael Bennett oh, yeah. wrote a book called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. And John Wells optioned the book. I love that John Wells optioned that. That's hilarious. Yes. So my job is to make him and the white people in his office uncomfortable. That's the thing. I love John Wells, by the way. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I love him too. He's a great guy. Yeah, I've talked to him several times. He's he's awesome. But him and uh, Aaron Jontow and his office that runs the company, I have to make them uncomfortable. That's when I know I've hit the spot. <laughs> because, And I've never thought that if my grandmother knew that one day somebody would pay me to make white people uncomfortable she right. would be proud uh but it's an anthology series the first season is about um the best way to describe it is there's a problematic dynamic with liberal white people i think we could talk for another hour on this exactly yeah. that it could be as dangerous as the conservative mindset mm -hmm. and you rarely see that sort of examined and so the anthology series the first season takes a hard look at um that type of thinking. I love it. I pitched some stuff in that area a few years ago. I wanted to do it at ABC and it became something else. But uh, It's a tough nut to crack. It is because there's resistance to it and people don't understand that there's good storytelling in areas that haven't been explored. That's where you can find good storytelling. So get your opinion out of it. Your opinion's irrelevant in this. But that's hard. That is the hardest part because sometimes the person that you're talking to thinks you're talking about them. Yeah. And so that gets in the way and makes it really, really hard. In fact... Gronish, which is on right now, yeah. I had an idea that I called liberal arts, which was about what's actually happening on the college campuses now. It was an observation of that. It the was term. More, it was more of a satirical show, but uh, Kenya came to me at the time and wanted to do a spinoff for the Zoe character on Blackish. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's where those those two ideas tried to come together, but they didn't really fit nicely. It became more, as it should have, you know, more about her journey, but. When I pitched that to ABC, I remember my original idea. I mean, they really loved it and all that. But I'm like, these niggas don't want to make this show. <laughs> you know? It's like, they don't understand what this show really is. Wait till these scripts come in. You're not going to like it. Either. Exactly. But I'm always looking for it, the expression that's not there. You know, something yeah. that... What are people not talking about? What are they afraid to talk about here? And all the Norman Lear stuff was sort of villainizing exactly. the conservative white folks anyway. So it's like, how much more of that can you continuously do and it feel fresh and different? And liberals are the gatekeepers now. So it's like, if you're the gatekeepers, there's going to be some arrows pointed your way, motherfuckers. That's how it works. 
Stop <laughs> acting like you're the holy ones. No, nigga, you're the ones yes. in charge. Yes. <laughs> but I want to help you. I want to be your friend. <laughs> yeah. I want to be your friend, Larry. Yes. Come on. Exactly. Come on. Well, man, I can't wait to see all your stuff. And like I said, this is a big candy bowl for me, winning time. You know, it's a huge candy bowl. Even if you don't know a lot about basketball at that time, the Lakers, watch this show. It is so enjoyable. And by the way, John C. Riley's clips alone. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe him in this. You know, he's a joy he to watch. He is. I mean, he looks like he's having so much fun too. You know. And the thing is, he can go from dark to light within a scene. Like he one really minute can. he's combing his chest hair, and the next minute he's about to throw somebody out of a window. Yeah, there was an interesting scene in the elevator with his daughter where you thought it was going to be the typical turning, giving some good advice, but it turned yeah. a little dark. Yeah. And almost, hey, don't fuck with me right now. I'm not in the good position. I was like, whoa, yeah. man, you know. Yeah. But only a guy, and I'm sure you know from, you know, working with a bunch of comedians over yeah. the course of time, how quickly that thing can turn. The thing that's charming and that everyone loves can become that other thing. Yep, because that other thing is what's actually there. <laughs> exactly. exactly. A lot of people, it just now have the opportunity to come out and say, hey, everybody. And that's why John is so great in that role, because, you know, one minute he's the guy with the you know the point and the smile. Yeah. And then the next moment, he's the guy that could stab you with that point. So, yeah. Winning time, the rise of the Lakers dynasty. Rodney Burns, everybody. Thanks, Rodney, for being on Black in the Air. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Good talking to you.